I started out as a uh, social worker. I knew from high school that I wanted to be a therapist, um, but I, at the time that I was in college, I did not really want to spend what I t- was told was seven years uh, in graduate school. And so I elected to do a two-year program, um, and I worked for several years as a social worker uh, in a medical, in a hospital. And then I went back to school after all and um, did get a doctorate in clinical psychology, um, and I became very interested in family therapy. It made a lot of sense to me because it was very systemic, and I had had enough of sort of the Freudian, all internal uh uh, business as uh, explaining human behavior and human distress. So I've spent time training as a family therapist after I got my doctorate, and um, I've worked pretty much uh, my whole career in community uh, mental health settings. Uh, and in addition, I have done teaching um, at a postgraduate family therapy institute, Ackerman, um, training family therapists, and uh, I've also done some teaching in a doctoral, I'm sorry, a uh, master's level uh, in an MFT program, Master's in Family Therapy. So that's pretty much my training. Sounds pretty extensive. We're talking about internalized oppression. Could you describe what that means? Well, first of all, I have to say that I, what I need to give you is that this is my framework understanding. Terms are used differently across contexts. There's no one understanding of the term internalized oppression or internalized racism or internalized sexism. I use that term to mean that the person who is subjugated by virtue of the particular group that they belong to and that we're talking about racism, but this applies across different collective groups around gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, that person who has been subjugated has internalized uh, racist ideas about their inferiority. So that is how I think about internalized uh, oppression. Now, there are some people who also use the phrase internalized racism or oppression for the privileged group. I'm going to be more specific here. So, for example, there are some people who will say, well, whites have internalized superiority and people of color have internalized inferiority. And I am not a fan of that particular use of language, Uh, and it's only because I think it's really important to make clear that the privileged position and the subjugated position don't mirror each other. It's Mm. a very distinct situation, and so you can't take one and say, oh, everything that applies here should apply here. So it's very different if you use that other language, which I don't, which is to say that white people have internalized their superiority and black people have internalized their inferiority. Yes, that's, that's one way, and it makes sense, but it's different when, you, when you're internalizing the superiority, and in fact, that experience is very different from internalizing inferiority. And in fact, you in the privileged position are part of a legacy of co-creating and continuing that legacy. So I like to make it distinct, for, you know, which is to say that if I'm in the, in the uh, privileged group, whether that's race or class or whatever, when I act in certain ways, I am acting in a racist way or I'm acting in a classist way. And 
If I'm in the subjugated group and I am manifesting either feelings or behavior that reflect oppression, I have internalized oppression. I don't know, is that clear or is that... It makes sense to me. I actually like your definition. It helps me to understand because I also used the words internalized racism or oppression to identify internalized feelings of superiority. And you really helped me to kind of break that down. And so I appreciate that. You've done quite a bit of work on internalized racism. I'm wondering what led you to that work in your practice with families. Well, I think I have to start, and then let me, I feel also, because whenever you're talking to somebody, you really, you really do need to know their frame. I'm serious about words. I understand. <laughs> so I just want to say about racism before I even, you know, go further, because racism gets used, and I think, again, it's a very wide uh, understanding of what that means. My frame around racism, uh, and it's the frame of, I think I first got this frame from James Jones. He wrote a book about racism. He's a psychologist and at one time was uh, head of the American Psychological Association Minority Fellowship Program. He makes a clear distinction between prejudice and racism because sometimes people want to equate racism and prejudice. And the main difference has to do with power and it has to do with systems. We all have prejudice. We might not like a particular thing, food, people. However, what makes oppression so distinctive and so powerful is the fact that it's empowered. It is empowered in the systems that are often embody the thought and the practices, support the idea, and actually try to ensure that it remains or comes to be that people of African descent or other people of color are deemed inferior. So, it's a much more complex phenomenon than some individual expression of prejudice. From that point of view, I would say black people can be prejudiced against whites, but because we are not generally empowered in this society, that we're not engaging in racism. I would make a distinction. Now, again, you have other people who, who want to treat, and I, think it's, I just think it's a mistake in terms of really understanding the difference. There is a clear difference between individual prejudice, uh, prejudice and a systemic system that operates on multiple levels to make the supposition that people of color are inferior and to actually have policies that maintain or try to maintain that. I appreciate you for breaking that down for us so well. The distinction is clear. So with that distinction being made, what led you what led me to this life. work? Right. So the first thing I'd have to say is the the first lead-in was about racism, because I think, even though I knew I wanted to be a therapist and I was very um, interested in, you know, mental health and people's distress and so forth, it was in my college years, which was really the late 60s, early 70s, that I sort of had my own uh, racial awakening, or I don't know if I'd call it a racial awakening. I, it was the first time I understood this business of, of the systemic ways in which this society operated to alienate me from myself. Okay. And that was a huge thing. So at that point, you know, I was still wearing um, relaxed hair, and I suddenly realized that, you know, I had really just been programmed on many different levels. I mean, these are the days of Angela Davis. These are the days mm -hmm. of George Jackson. Yes. I mean, I was, 
And so that became like a, an awakening that about all the ways in which racism has seeped through uh, as a system to alienate us. And so it was clear to me that that was a mental health issue. Of course. Okay. <laughs> when I say that, I mean, I'm not talking about whether it was a mental health issue in terms of system and, and white people, but one can argue that. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm studying. That's not what I'm about. But I, it was clear to me that all of those, the feeling about being alienated from myself is a mental health issue because when you're alienated from yourself, you, it's hard to feel good exactly um, yeah. about certain aspects. And let me be, make another point about words right here. <laughs> I'm pretty idiosyncratic. That's one of the words I would say about myself. So I don't particularly like the ways the term self-hatred gets thrown around mm-hmm. so easily among us. Okay. Um, and the reason I don't is because I think hate is an obliterating feeling. Right. And while maybe there are some of us uh, who walk around who absolutely feel utterly obliterated about our um, our Africanness or our Asianness or whatever, I don't think most of us. I, I think that's the rare case. Yeah. I think that we. I mean, I've had clients say to me, you know, I really just don't like my nose. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or my lips are too big, or I wish my eye. You know, there there may be particular things, right, about yes. you that you don't that you may feel badly about. But I think that most of us can find other things about ourselves that we do feel good about. Right. So I I'm just not cavalier with throwing that term around. Um, so when I said it's hard to feel good about yourself, I wasn't trying to imply that we could never experience ourselves as good. I think there's always been the countervailing uh, processes where, on the one hand, oppression attempts to shame us and tell us we're inferior, and the other process is the ways in which our ancestors and we have fought that, right. um, you know, strategically to, to create uh, contexts where we could experience ourselves in wonderful ways, and right. that that's part of it as well. Which is part so, of what happened in the 70s. I mean, the whole Black Pride movement was like yes. a countering the inferior narrative. That- yes. So that was the first place that it started. And then, of course, as you start looking into it more and more, like the whole way, and it's like you realize that you've taken in, like I was saying about the hair, right? Mm-hmm. I realized I had taken in this idea. And um, and so it became a process of me deciding and being highly motivated because I never was all that keen on you know somebody dictating. Um, <laughs> okay. That 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 I wanted to be that I, I wanted to determine you know that I wanted to be able to see myself differently. And so and Bell Hooks talks about this in one of her books about how in, in some ways it's in it's. It's often out of our own experience that we sort of can create ideas and theories, yes. right? And so that was true for me. Like, so then it made me wonder, like, how much, you know, um, are the rest of us, like, internalizing and not, and then feeling bad, right? Feeling bad or ashamed of your hair, feeling bad or ashamed of your intellect, you know, a variety of things that we have been told are inferior. So um, it was. It was pretty hand-in-hand in in some way, although, again, the racism and understanding the systemic piece was was pivotal. But um, 
it was pretty soon. I mean, even when I went to social work school, I was I was all about that. I was all about trying to understand and think about how is racism affecting us and how is our internalization uh, affecting us. Can you describe some ways that internalized racism shows up in the black community? Well, I think one of the ways it shows up, there are some of us who basically don't want to be treated by other black people. We want to have a a white doctor Mm -hmm. or a white dentist or uh, a white contractor. I see it as one's own sense of inferiority that then gets put onto other black people uh, and this belief that still the white person is the better trained, is the more intelligent, is the more well-informed. I mean, generally, to make the assumption that some white person is going to be better than some black person is, to me, nothing but racism. I mean, I assume that being competent uh, (laughs) is pretty well distributed across races. So, you know, to think that that the race is is going to be the defining factor of being your competence or the quality of your care, I think, is problematic. I think sometimes internalized racism shows up, especially when we feel that the other person of color is maybe moving up. This theme of you think you're better than me is very powerful Mm -hmm. in our community. And, you know, it may be powerful in other experiences, too. I'm not claiming that it isn't I don't know because I you know I'm talking out of my experience but you think you're better than me to me is a reflection of one's own sense of having been and being seen as devalued and in some ways feeling devalued mm-hmm. right and then the other person moving up let's say whether that's education or whether that's economically um and then Sometimes I think it's a projection. I hate to be using that word because that's actually a Freudian word, but actually some, there's one or two things about Freudian stuff that I actually... <laughs> <laughs> that you can kind of relate to huh? yeah. <laughs> and embrace. Yeah, that, um, that there's this, this a sense that so because you are moving up, you're now looking down on me, right? Right, which, is, which I think still comes out of that sense of um, being devalued and, and inferior. Now... It's complicated because sometimes, in fact, we do do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why it's no straightforward thing. There are times when people move up and they do adopt a better-than stance, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and that feeds that. And in that case, I would say that is not simply just internalized inferiority. But I think that even when people who move up are not, seeing themselves as um, superior, not, not removing themselves from relationships um, because they have moved up the ladder. Even when that doesn't happen, I think oftentimes that's, that's almost an automatic expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes it really, to me, seems like it is mostly internalized um, uh, racism and classism, because class is in there too. I, I need to say this as well. We're talking about racism, but the reality is that all of these different identities that we occupy matter and influence each other. Right. There's a lot of work that's been done around the idea of intersectionality, bell hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw and others. And I think it's important to say that your experience of racism is going to be shaped 
by your your class position. It's going to be shaped by your uh, where you locate in terms of your um, sexual orientation. All of these things are impacting each other. So I wouldn't say that that being middle class, for example, means you're immune to racism. Um, I think we all know all well, all too well, that that's not the case. But it does provide some buffers mm-hmm. um, that uh, being working class or low income uh, don't provide. And so all of those shape how what people experience. But I think the the business of sort of feeling like you're being left behind and therefore you think you're better than me is often, I think, stemming from that internal experience. At the same time, I think we have to be accountable, those of us who do move up. We have to be accountable for the way we understand that movement. It can be internalized racism to to go up in the middle class and, and to think you're better. Right. Right? It also can be a form of internalized racism, right? But somehow you have earned your way out of your inferiority, which is not... And when I say your inferiority, I mean the inferiority that racism implies is that that you as a being, as an African being, and that's usually from our experience what, what it amounts to, the way in which African people have been considered inferior. But it's not about what you do per se. It's a, That's who you are. Right. And that's where the shame comes in is that it's like we've been shamed as a people, right, just that very... Uh, Africanness is the source of the shame. So, you know, you there's nothing you can do about that, right? So you try to earn yourself, right? But but the point is not to buy is to find ways not to buy into it in the first place. Which is why we're having Which this conversation. It, it's really hard, and that's why we're having this conversation is just to get people to start to think about that, um, to reflect on that. Can we agree? that these words that you're using, racial inferiority and superiority, that can we agree that they're all myths, that they're not based yes. in reality? Would that yes. help oh, us absolutely. as we go forward? Yes, so, that's, what I was, that's what I was trying to say, that like, I think when you start thinking that you earn your way out of this label, right, like it's a way of still accepting that label, Right. Or I mean, believing it. Yeah, you're believing it exists. Yeah. It's it's like that becomes a reference point. It's like one of the things that I have recently in recent years begun to think about the the expression that we've had about you have to be three two and three times as good. Exactly. Yes. That I have begun to I mean, I think that expression really came out of just the acknowledgement of how difficult it was uh for for black people to, you know, overcome the barriers that were placed in our in our way um it's just a, a real a fact of reality and that oftentimes people have to be so you know like uh guess who's coming to dinner was a classic of this exactly right he's like a super doc with i don't know how many different titles and so forth and so on um and at the same time i've begun to think that it's been a double-edged sword because with those words you know, reverberating is also, I think, on the other edge of that is, like, you have to be two and three times good to make up, <laughs> not just for the barrier, but for who you are. Right, yeah. And um, I think that 
this we're always faced with this no matter what i think it goes up the class ladder with proving that we're not i think that always hovers um you know over i think there's a there's an an author who's written a book called Fa- facing the black shadow she calls it the black shadow that thing that's always kind of hovering over us just beneath the surface that we're trying to overcome right i think she's talking about the sense of black she's talking about internalized racism i'm talking about i'm talking about that from the point of view of racism now that you know somebody can present and say oh they have a doctorate and somebody says do they really have a doctorate (laughs) um it it goes up the ladder The, the question is still hovering and so i think we feel then that we have to somehow always prove our way out of the question of our inferiority, right? Right, and I think, and I think that once you step into that arena of proving that you have bought into that assumption, and I think it, I don't think it serves us well. It's, this may be counterintuitive because I know people often say, "Well, I'm going to prove to so and so that I can do something," but it, but you still put at the center when you say you're proving. You put at the center that notion, and to me, it still drives what you do, mm-hmm. and as opposed to so. So part of this thing for excellence, um, and this is this is tricky, and I guess it's still part of what I was saying about thinking you can earn your way out of it. That if you make that the center of what you're doing, and there's no, I don't think there's any end to it. Like when do you ever arrive at really proving yourself out of that. Um, Is it even possible? Yeah, right. It feels like you're on a hamster wing, and I think, wheel, and I think that that's what sometimes is one of the ways that people try to cope with that feeling of internalized racism is to try to be so great um, and, and put some really unrelenting demands on oneself in the name of, and I don't think we say this out loud to ourselves, but that what we're doing is trying to prove, and I don't think you ever arrive. And so I, I feel like it's important not to, to – and I saw a film just recently that made this point. It was really good uh, called Loose. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, came out of the Sundance Festival. But mm-hmm. the character, the main character, ends up talking about why do we always have to be either exceptional – or, you know, at the bottom, you know, or terrible or horrible or that kind of thing. And I think the, ex- and the, and the issue was is that this other black person was part of the, the demand that, he, you know, he be exceptional and walk this line. Um, and I think we get into a lot of trouble with that, too. Uh, I can even just talk a little bit about myself. So I have come to the point where I think, look, we have passions. We have things we're interested in. Let's move out from a self place of self determination to to do you know as best we can with our passions, because simply because it's an expression of who we are and who we are, what we're here to deliver. Right? I'm okay. I'm fine with doing your best, but and doing your best not as some proof of anything to anyone but because that's what you're here to do mm-hmm. and you pursue it that way, okay? And, and 
it doesn't your your own worth doesn't hang in the balance with it. And that's what I was trying to say about sometimes when people achieve up the ladder, they may be mistaken when they think they've earned it. You don't earn your way out of that. You you either going to move from that as the center or you're going to put yourself in the center and say, this is what I want for myself, I'm doing. And I worry sometimes even with our kids, mm-hmm. you know, the way in which we sort of make them feel like, well, you have to be excellent, you have to be, right. you have to be, you know. It just feels too defensive um, as opposed to, well, you know, what are you enjoying? Well, you know, how much did you give to it? You know, did you enjoy giving to it? How can we help you expand with this? So it's not that you're giving up doing well, but it's what is it in the service of? And really understanding that there's nothing to buy our way out of, not really. Right. You know, like Even though it's a, it's a both and, we can't help but have internalized some of this, right? So, for example, one of the things that I have done over time is, and I'm still not completely sure about this, my mother <clears throat> was also a professional um, and she believes strongly in quality. That's how I saw it. And I think quality is cool. I believe in quality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter what you're doing, I believe it's important to to yeah. do it well. Yeah, do your best. Know. Yes, to do your best. But I found myself at times, and I don't realize, and this is where you come in with implicit notions that you carry that you don't even realize. Mm-hmm. I was writing an article at one point, <clears throat> and I was saying something that was bit, quite controversial, I thought, at the time. And I thought, am I going to, am I really going to commit this to writing? Uh, because, you know, <laughs> when you commit it to writing, it's there, you know, it's there. <laughs> and I came to realize that, yes, I could do that. I could do that because, you know why? Because it's okay. I can change my mind. Well, you can change your mind. Exactly. I can expand I don't have to defend this for all time, that unless I can say something that it can hold up over time, I shouldn't be saying it. You know, these unrealistic (laughs) ideas we hold. And the same thing for, like, giving talks at times, right? I'd be like, ah. And I'm like, you can say you don't know. Somebody can ask you something. You can say, well, I really don't know. It's okay. That's a good question. Yeah, it's okay. I'll have to think about it. Yeah, but these are the ways in which sometimes I think that whole unrelenting demand to prove, and, and again, we don't walk around thinking that. I didn't walk around thinking that's what I was doing, but come to believe that that's part of what, how it was operating in me. And you're alluding to implicit kind of beliefs, implicit biases, and the fact that you're not always aware. So how unconscious is a lot of this stuff? I think a lot of it is. And I would say in my frame, that's implicit racism. Mm-hmm. I don't, right, that's what I, I, all of the messaging that carries ideas of inferiority, and there are lots of channels from institutions for criteria for various positions, and I think to language, to ideas about culture, all of that, to me, is part of the system of, of racism. And so I would say that's what I was talking about was the ways in which implicit racism. And I think a lot of it is. When I think of racism, there is both explicit and implicit. And I have thought in the past, I think I still think this, that implicit is more worrisome because of the fact that it is not recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes, it's held as a benign, normal thing. So in that sense, you can really do damage. Exactly. Not realizing. And I think one of the ones that I think this is in keeping with my interest in words and writing and so forth, language is one of the main ways in which I think implicit bias operates. Oh, yes. Yes, Um, I agree. I think it, it operates a lot. But I think 
one of the critiques that some people are making of the implicit bias movement, and I'm not a, I'm not a student of that, it's only one part of it, and you can't really address a systemic thing like racism just alone through individual uh, implicit assumptions that people make mm-hmm. or stereotypes that they hold. Well, I think it's just possibly part of the ways that the unconscious piece happens is that it's just washing over us. We're not really questioning it. It's just it's happening. We're listening, right. we're hearing it, we're seeing it. And that's how we unconsciously start to believe certain things that we end up internalizing. Right. So for example, I think of like there are schools that very explicitly say, well, you can't wear natural hair. Right. And there is a movement now, and I just recently read about this, to try to change that. I That's think... very explicit. But then there are all the images that come at you, like, do I see any women, any black women or women of African descent on in newscasts as reporters on TV? No. Very Not rare. a one. Very rarely. That I see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, rarely. So that's an implicit message. And to me, you don't even realize it. You're just watching TV. Exactly. Uh, and that's why it can be so powerful in that way. And damaging. Yeah. I think New York and California both passed legislation recently that made it illegal to discriminate against someone for their hairstyle. Mm-hmm. I don't know about California, actually, but I think it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's too bad, um, but I, I have to say I'm reminded of, again, Chris Rock's movie. This woman spoke and made explicit this notion like so-called good hair, or no, no, not good hair, mm-hmm. relaxed hair mm-hmm. relaxes white people. And wow, that was such a powerful thing to make explicit. And so a part of my work, you know, as a therapist, and also, you know, in terms of teaching family therapists or training family therapists, I think is the power of making the implicit explicit. Mm. So when you're depressed about your body, for example, right, let's examine what messages have you received that are contributing to that. And then you, when you make it explicit, it, it allows you to then, um, it becomes external in part. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong to you per se. It is something that has influenced. It's a particular way of looking. It's a particular way of looking at bodies, right? And you get to decide then whether or not you want to join that particular way of looking at bodies, you know, whether that's skin color, whether that's size, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But you begin to be aware that your depression, for example, is not simply because you are, or even mainly because you are inadequate in some way, you know. Yeah, I think I understand what you're you're trying to say. You mentioned hair texture, that relaxed hair is equivalent to good hair. Right. That happens, and I think that's one of those imp- implied things. It's never, it's just kind of normalized. And once it became no longer normalized, it kind of led to a movement, which led to the legislation. That's part of this journey of internalized racism, bringing it to the surface, bringing it out, and saying we can do something about that. Right. It's well, really it's challenging a decision. the notion of good. It's very challenging. Straight being good, right? That's part of the internalized inferiority or and superiority. That if straight hair is good, and hair that isn't straight is not so good. Right. And so we also then we have the choice of whether we want to collude in that language. Exactly. So I, I, when I said that, I, I was mixing up the, the name of the movie. 
that he did the doc. It was kind of a documentary, more. Yeah, it was called Good Hair. Yeah, it was Good Hair, yeah, right? It was actually called Good Hair, and it brought up a lot of. It triggered a lot of things in the community from a lot of different people. But I was very glad he did it. I was I, too. I'll tell you another one that I really think I'm. I'm very stuck with is, uh, and it's almost like a Herculean thing. But I think the way dark gets used, you know, black got used in a certain way. It was mm-hmm. all pejorative for the most part. I feel like dark is the same thing. Exactly. I mean, that's... every time I turn around, you think that you can think about dark in all these negative ways, and that that doesn't influence the way you think about dark skin, which is what we call colorism in the black yeah. community, and yeah. that's the yeah. real source of shame. We haven't really started to explore that as much. It's kind of the explicitly implicit normal belief system in the black community. Of us are actually though. I think because in some sectors we're really looking at both our subjugated identities and our privileged identities. Because generally most people have both. And when I say privileged, I mean if you happen to be privileged class-wise vis-a-vis, and it's relative to who you're around. But you know, if you're middle class, there's a certain privilege of of being middle class. Of course compared to being working class and low income, or you're privileged as a heterosexual. So I think skin color has become, again, I don't want to try to say this is widely, but there is a growing population of people who are actually trying to do this work and realize that skin color, light skin color is a privilege. Mm-hmm. In it, this society. it is. And then to acknowledge that and how you benefit and how you use that, and are you using it in a way that simply reinforces that that's better than, or that should be privileged, or are you you using that uh, in a way that speaks to everyone? And when I say everyone, I mean all shades of people of color. So it's not that it's the work is namely widespread. I feel like there are things now that we are talking about among ourselves and even among white people that when I was growing up, there was no way. Oh, exactly. It was and unheard think, of. Yeah. It was unheard was, of. That had to be like, because I think there was shame. Oh, yes. And, and my sense of it is that the more we sort of can decrease some of the shame and begin to talk about some of these things. It's a reinforcing circle. Like when you don't talk about it, it binds it. Mm-hmm to you, right? And it it stays shameful because you keep it as a secret and that means it stays shameful. Whereas if you can begin to talk about that as a vulnerability, which I think it is. It is. It is a vulnerability. And the reality is, is that we are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, but you know, we are vulnerable in a way. We're all vulnerable as human beings, but when you've been subjugated on various identities, that's an increased vulnerability. So the more that you can find a way in a safe environment to begin to talk about it a little bit, it loosens its hold. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean dramatically. I just mean it's because it, it's a long process. But you begin to be able to say, oh, okay, so now, you know, talking about nappy hair or kinky hair, like it's just for most of us, I don't think it has nearly, and for some of us, I don't think it has any shame mm-hmm. um, associated with it. So that's part of the healing, is talking about it, getting past the shame, or allowing yourself to be vulnerable around it can also lead to unbinding, which can lead to healing. Yes, I think it's, a, and my idea of healing is that it's, you know, it's no abrupt Mm-mm. process. It's about diminishing the energy that some of the wounds have, right? So that they become less and less powerful in the ways that we think and the ways that we behave. I think healing is a lifelong process. Yes, and I, as someone who believes in multiple lifetimes, right. <laughs> <laughs> think okay. it's multiple lifetimes. So, 
in th- so in this lifetime, I'm looking at healing praxis, just things that we can do to just be our best selves or just be better and eliminate some of that shame around these topics. I mean, we understand why we have internalized these messages. So there shouldn't be any shame there. The shame is in not facing. We can't heal what we won't face. Well, and also I think when you're under attack, it's very difficult to show your vulnerability. Exactly. And, that makes sense. Yeah. and I think even though I'm encouraging us to be a little more vulnerable, I'm not I'm not suggesting that, you know, that one doesn't need to be cautious about where and with whom mm-hmm. one does that because you can also end up being re-traumatized. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is why I argued for within group space, um, meaning that uh, people of color have a chance to get together without the white gaze, so to speak. Mm-hmm. All praises to Toni Morrison for her, <laughs> yes. that concept, and for all that she brought to bear of our experiences to the page. And so I think it lessens the chance of being sort of reshamed, be able to own. And I find this is increasingly happening, I mean, among some of the people in my profession mm-hmm. uh, that I work with. It's it's tricky, though. It's hard. If we are... I've been involved in a group of women some time ago of different women of color having what we call difficult conversations mm-hmm. uh, about racism, classism, you know, oppression. And it really, it went on for, um, I think, about three years, but we came to a point where the theme came up and it was around skin color and it was around class of some people feeling like they were being devalued by others and that some people weren't being held accountable mm-hmm. for that. And these were all, you know, people in the field who are doing this work and but, you know, you, you got to get on this train mm-hmm. somewhere. Get in where you fit in, as the young people say. Well, it's like, look, the train is a long ride. It's a long ride. It's a long ride. Like, these these things are, you know, centuries old. Right. But at some point, we got to start, right? I feel hopeful about that. I mean, I, I really do. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I look at some of the work that's being done to really pay attention to what we're dealing with. Like, I, I look at Ta-Nehisi's mm-hmm. work and just him elevating just the whole issue of fear, that fear is what he perceives to be what's going on in so much of our community. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I just look at what even some of the art that's coming out, it's, we're really starting to look at this thing, uh, not simply be, not simply to enact, but to recognize what we're enacting and how we can do it differently. I do think we're getting intentional about it, and I am yeah. very hopeful. It, it's encouraging to know that we are recognizing it and we are moving past the shame. And we are talking about it. And it is not easy. This is really, really hard work. It is. It really is. And I mean, the shame, I've said this before, that it's really not our shame to own. We need to keep that in mind. And what happened was shameful. Yes, <laughs> most definitely. Oppression is shameful. It's shameful. And, you know, that's the other part of the legacy that people have to deal with is the part of when their legacy has been shameful, yeah. right, has perpetrated. But I've spent most of my career focused on the subjugated position. But I have, because of intersectionality, I've become more aware of how I have to be accountable for the privileges that I have. Right. You know, as being heterosexual, being middle class, and how there's implicitly, you know, things in in there that I haven't recognized that I'm becoming more conscious of so that I don't continue to perpetrate out of those privileged forms, of, you know, that I don't become 
classes, which I think we all are affected by all of this. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's all over. It's It's impossible to avoid it. Exactly. So we just have to say, let me do the work. Right. That is really, I think, the thing. And I think the whole question of, uh, I think one of the things you had said about white supremacy, that you feel you hear that term a lot more these days, and it's true. And, you know, way back when, Bell Hooks was using that term, like, instead of racism, she preferred that as making it very clear. What you're referring to, I think, though, that what's happening is that, again, they're more comfortable talking about it now as Mm -hmm. white superiority because we're at the extreme explicit. And so people can... And this is how it's been in the in the popular culture in general. Like your racist means you're uh, you know you're a skinhead or you know you're you're explicitly right doing, right. And that's a framework that leaves out a lot that racism is much more pervasive than that. And you don't have to be an explicit racist in order to be racist or to believe in the myth of white superiority. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, I use those two words differently, white supremacy versus white superiority. They're very different things to me. I, I'm getting a signal saying my time in the studio is up. I only, okay. I only arranged for one hour, and I'm already 15 minutes past that. Oh, my God. Yeah, so. Okay. But I really appreciate your taking the time to do this, to have this conversation. Um, it's going to be helpful. I mean, there are a lot a lot of people who I think we have more control over overcoming and unlearning the internalized piece and that we spend a whole lot of time fighting the external racism that we experience and we have to do that we have to continue to do that but I also think that we have to be intentional about dealing with the thing we have the most control of Mm -hmm. and that's how we feel about ourselves and each other Mm -hmm. I think we can do something about that I can't change you, but I can change me. Yeah, I think they're uh, both fronts are are, are important. essential. Yeah, yeah they're both essential. Important. Well, thank you for um, the opportunity to share some of my thoughts and experiences.